Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. Today, we're going to focus on meditation, the benefits of meditation, how to begin a meditation practice, and how to overcome obstacles to continuing or reestablishing a steady practice. My guest today is Swami Sharadananda, who has been practicing and teaching yoga and meditation for over 40 years. She holds an MA in Traditions of Yoga and Meditation from the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. She has written several books on various aspects of yoga and meditation, including the book we will be discussing today, Sitting Comfortably, Preparing the Mind and Body for Peaceful Meditation. Swami Sharadananda worked with the International Shivananda Yoga Vedanta Centers for 26 years and directed centers in New York, London, Toronto, New Delhi, and the Himalayas. She is now teaching independently and offers personal mentoring for yogic and meditation practices. You can find out more about Swami Sharadananda, and that's spelled S-A-R-A-D-A-N-A-N-D-A, Sharadananda, at her website, yogamentor.yoga. Again, yogamentor.yoga. You can also follow her on social media, on Instagram, she is at yoga underscore mentor, and on Facebook, it's her name, Swami Sharadananda. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, Swami Sharadananda. I'm really delighted you could join me today on the show. Oh, thank you, Laurel. I'm really happy to be here. So let's dive in to a moment of present moment awareness of just being right here right now, a yoga moment before we have our conversation. So let's start wherever we are, whatever we're doing, let's just bring our attention to our body in space, just feeling our body and in particular, noticing any surfaces that are supporting our weight. Where are our feet? What part of our body's weight might be supported in a chair? Or if we're walking or moving, noticing every time that one of our feet touches the ground. And then bringing our attention to the breath And just noticing as we take a fully conscious breath, the next inhale and exhale. On the next inhale, noticing the cool air as it enters the nostrils. And on the exhale, feeling now the air has been warmed as it passes through the lungs. And just staying with the breath continuing to notice every breath. Here is something to contemplate from Yogacharya O'Brien's book, Living for the Sake of the Soul. We are supreme consciousness itself. We look for well-being, but we are well-being. We search for wholeness, but we are wholeness. We desire prosperity and security. We already are that. We pray for love. We are love itself. Each moment, the door to spiritual fulfillment opens to us. We need only enter. Once again, 
Swami Sharadananda. Welcome to the Yoga Hour. I'm really delighted to have you as a guest to discuss your book, Sitting Comfortably, Preparing the Mind and Body for Peaceful Meditation. I really enjoyed looking at the book and found that it was very full of wonderful advice about beginning a meditation practice, about overcoming obstacles that we might encounter in meditation, and that you cover so much that it was really a bit of a job to figure out what I wanted to talk about today because there's so much more in the book than we can possibly cover in this hour. So I'll begin by asking what led you to write your book, and in particular, at this moment in time, I know you actually wrote it, I think it was maybe a year and a half ago, but what, what was your inspiration or what were you hoping to accomplish? Yeah, I actually signed the contract to write the book about two weeks before the lockdown began. Wow. Then when the lockdown started and everyone was complaining about being locked in their house, I thought, but this is normal. It's what I always do when I write a book. You know, I said I work. I go out a couple times a week, I get some food, and I come back and I write. Um, But it's actually, the book is actually based on the findings from a course that I've been teaching now for, I think it's about 15 or 17 years. And I teach, it's for yoga teachers who want to teach meditation as well. So over the years, I always keep track of, um, you know, pro- I always ask the students, what problems do you have? What problems are your students having? What can we do to solve these problems? And I always make notes. So actually the book is the result of that course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but it, it's written for not just teachers, because um, I give the people, these participants of the course, a manual, but it's more for teaching. But the book is more for everyone. And yeah. I thought, you know, nowadays, so many people meditate, um, you know, or people do mindfulness training. And a lot of people think they want to meditate, and then they just don't do it. Mm-hmm. And there are certain, like, major reasons why people don't do it, even when they think they want to. Um, one is that it's just uncomfortable to sit Mm. you know it's like a very basic thing if you don't feel comfortable doing something it's natural to sort of put it off right no Um, i appreciated that and in particular in the book you have a section that's on um, stretches and preparation for sitting because you point out that for some people the barrier is literally sitting comfortably and they can't do that um I did want to take a moment and just ask you about what benefits you've seen from meditation in your own life. Um, Well, I just, I just feel more peaceful in my life. Like, um, you know, I, when I teach the course, I always give students homework to do each week. And I always ask them, how do you know you're making progress in meditation? Because students always ask that. How do I know I'm making progress? Because, you know, we don't have black belts in meditation. You know, right. you can't test someone if they're meditating. And, you know, people give all kinds of answers. But I think the best answer is that you just feel more happy and peaceful in life in general. Right. And that, I think, is the major benefit of meditation is that you do feel more peaceful. So I think that's the most important benefit. Right, right. Um, You said you liked my question, like um, asking why should I meditate? is like asking why do you want to be happy? Right, exactly, yeah. Because really everyone, I mean, what's the goal of life? is just to be happy. Right. You can say, well, I meditate because my health is better. Well, why do you want your health to be better? You know, I feel more peaceful. Well, why do you want to feel more peaceful? But in the end, it just comes down to everyone wants to be happy. Right. And different people have different things that they think will make them happy. Right. 
And you go through that in the book. You talk about um, the difference between, um, my quote was, uh, perhaps like most people, you make the basic error of mistaking what triggers your happiness, such as playing golf or a piece of chocolate cake, for the experience of happiness itself. And I, I thought that was very, very valuable of looking at um, looking at happiness and looking at when we're happy and just that whole process. And frankly, the, that aspect of yoga, of the yoga path is so appealing to me because as the as Patanjali talks about at the beginning of the second chapter, you know, the, the three main practices of Kriya Yoga are self-study, sorry, self-discipline, self-study and self-surrender. But that self-study piece, I mean, looking at our happiness and looking at what makes us happy, I think is such an important question because as you said, that is a goal underneath what other goals people may have. And people will point to, well, if I could just get that new car, I would be happy. If I could just, you know, have a relationship. I mean, it's something that they point to in the outer world, not realizing that we can't really tie our happiness to, um, you know, there's a difference between just happiness itself, which is part of our soul nature that is independent of you know, which I think is, was in the quote that I just read, it's independent of what's happening in the outside world. Did you, would you want to add to that? Yeah, well, I usually ask people to just think about the times they've been happy. You know, so if you think, I mean, even eating a piece of chocolate cake, because for those, okay, maybe it's five minutes or 10 minutes, your mind is totally focused on the cake. So you're not thinking about your problems. So anytime your mind is focused, you feel happy. Mm. You see, but we make the mistake of thinking it's a chocolate cake, right? If, if it's the chocolate cake makes you happy for 10 minutes, then five pieces of cake should make you happy for five times as long. <laughs> <laughs> Right, that doesn't work. And you quickly realize, like a few years ago, I got a new car, brand new car, which normally I, you know, had not bought that many brand new cars. I bought used cars that were new to me. But anyway, it doesn't take very long. And I was, I was very happy about my new car. But then, you know, you park it in the parking lot and pretty soon there's a ding, you know, you've got a ding in your car, you know, and then like, things start to go wrong with the car. I mean, it, you know, it doesn't take very long in that self-study process to realize that happiness was transitory about the car, but there are other ways that we can access happiness that aren't, that aren't transitory. Right, right. Yeah, because external, as long as you think anything outside of yourself is going to make you happy, well, it will for a short time, but it's, because for that short period, your mind was focused. You see, like when you get a new car, you know, you're so happy, you know, the smell of the car, the, you know, the feel of the car, you know, everything, your mind is totally focused and you're not thinking about your problems or you're not thinking of anything else you want. So whenever your mind is focused, you feel happy. Right. So, if you can just focus your mind inward and you don't need an external, you don't need an object to make you happy. Well, that's what meditation is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I did love that, that question that you asked or that statement that you have in the book, asking yourself if you want to develop a meditation practice is a bit like asking yourself, do I want to be happy? And yeah, that's certainly been my, be what was that? Why do I want to be happy? I mean, there's no reason. We just do. Everyone does. Right. Yeah. So in addition to being happy, you really talk about a lot of the reasons that um, meditation is good for us in many other ways. So let me just read a little, a little section of the introduction to your book. Regular meditation practice makes you more aware of the uniqueness of each moment, enabling you to live more fully in the present without needless longing for the past or worrying about the future. It enhances your capacity to be grounded and balanced in any circumstances. 
It brings more clarity to your daily life as you develop the ability to access a profound inner stillness. It can give you insights into the nature of your mind and how to deal with it, encouraging you to be more aware of habitual patterns of negative behavior, endowing you with the tools to change them, and lessening your tendency to indulge in reactive behavior. And I just thought that was such a lovely overview of my own experience of meditation, of the things that it, the benefits it has brought to my life. And then further, you go into a bunch of other, you know, benefits of meditation, which have been now proven. There's many, many scientific studies over the last, I don't know, 25, 30 years into meditation and its benefits of, of health, including it has uh, been shown to reduce stress, uh, decrease insomnia, anxiety, and depression, to help alleviate pain, to increase patience, compassion, energy, stamina, and resilience. And I think that's a fantastic list. Like who wouldn't want all of those things, right? So uh, did you want to say any more about benefits of meditation? I, I just kind of hit, you know, a few. You actually go into many, many more in the, in the, uh, in the book. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's a whole idea of efficiency as well. Because efficiency is just the ability to focus. And, you know, we all have things that we like to focus on and it's easier for, to fo- for us to focus on those. It's easier to focus on things we enjoy. But we all have difficulty just focusing on things we don't enjoy. But when you practice meditation, you develop the ability to focus your mind. So, you know, like it if you're working or you're living in the world, there are always things you have to do that you don't really like to do. You know, like every year you've got to do your taxes and a few people like to do their taxes, but it's just something you have to do, you see? So if you just focus your mind and get it over with, right? You can do it very efficiently, you see? And that leads on to the question or the problem that people have People say they don't meditate because they don't have more, they don't have time. Right. That's one of the big excuses. I can't meditate. I just don't have time. But what if you could work and do things more efficiently? You could make a lot of time, you know, like maybe something that took you hours before and you could finish it in, you know, a quarter of the time, Mm -hmm. you know, so now it's one hour instead of three. Mm-hmm. You see, you've just earned three hours of your life because you've you've developed the ability to focus your mind. Yes, indeed. Yeah, and I think the other thing is um, also a lot of people find that when they start to meditate, they sleep. They need less sleep, mm-hmm. and it's not that you keep set. You know, in the modern world, people keep setting their alarms earlier and earlier, and they're tired all the time. But that's not what I mean. When you meditate, you develop the ability to relax, to focus your mind. You see, so those people, when they're stressed out during the day, you know, if you ask yoga students, why do they come for class? They all say, I'm stressed out. I need to relax a little bit. You see, but then when you they lie down to go to sleep, They don't suddenly become relaxed and the stress goes away. They toss and they turn and they actually waste a lot of time where they think they're sleeping, but they're not actually in deep sleep. They're using energy rather than resting. And that's why people need so much sleep. Like most people think they need 10, you know, eight, 10, even 12 hours of sleep a night. But once you develop the ability to lie down, Turn off the stress just by focusing the mind on relaxing. You see, you find that you you need less sleep. Mm -hmm. So if you could sleep two hours less a night because you've meditated for 20 minutes or half an hour a day, you see, that's a really good return. Mm -hmm. You know, I always tell, well, my students are all teachers, but their students, they're not so interested in samadhi. You know, they're interested in practical things you know what can i what 
um, physical benefits am I going to get? You see, if you have an investment where you get a four to one return, that's a really good investment. So look at it that way. You're investing a half hour a day. And from that investment, you get back, you know, two hours. That's a very good investment. Yeah. You know, I, I had thought about sharing this um, time that I uh, was in my residency training. I'm a physician, an MD, and I did my training in internal medicine. And I trained at the time when uh, there were no there was no limit to the hours that you could be in the hospital. And so I would be on call overnight after having started like at 8 a.m. on a Monday, I'd be on call Monday night and I wouldn't get out of the hospital until maybe 7 p.m. on Tuesday. So it was, you know, more, more than 36 hours, you know, in the hospital. And so during the night, things would calm down, but there was always the possibility that I would get called in the middle of the night to go and evaluate a new patient in the emergency room. And you could never predict when that was going to happen. Mm -hmm. So here I was, maybe it was two in the morning, I knew I had to be up probably in, you know, three hours or four hours, something like that at most, but that I also might be interrupted in a half an hour to go and, and see someone. And so I had had a meditation practice in the past, and it was such an invaluable tool for me because it allowed, it brought my present, my focus into the present moment and allowed me to let go of thinking about what had happened that day thinking about what was might happen, like they might call me any minute, you know, and, and so to just be able to let go of that, and that, um, that focus that you were talking about, it really is a muscle that you can develop and you develop it through, through using it, like we develop, a you know, another muscle, a physical muscle in our body. And as you said, there are benefits that come from being able to build your focus. So through that practice, I was able to get, even if it was only a half an hour of sleep before I was awakened, I would be much more rested rather than lying down, waiting for the phone to ring thinking, is it going to ring now? Is it going to ring now? Are they going to call me now? And it was so difficult before I started meditating in the call room to just let go. So it was a huge benefit to me. And as you said, um, I got the benefit of not needing as much sleep because I had to work, you know, the entire next day. So that's just a little, <laughs> a little way that I use meditation in a very grounded, very practical way that was so helpful to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you, um, you write in your book, uh, like many people, my original impression of meditation was that it was just sitting around doing nothing. I've since found this to be far from the truth. It would be more accurate to say that meditation is a state of mind in which you are fully focused on the experience of being in the eternal now which kind of is an illustration of what I was just mentioning, you know, that my meditation practice allowed me to do that. Did you have anything to add? Um, no, but I think, you know, a lot of people, they feel um, almost selfish by taking time to meditate. Right. You know, a lot of times um, you'll have students and they'll come for class and then they don't come for class. And then, you know, when you see them again, you say to them, well, you know, is everything okay? You know, why didn't you come for class? And they say things like, well, you know, I feel really guilty about taking time away from my family. Right? Um, because people, you know, we're told it's better to give than receive. And, you know, especially like women, they always have to be giving. Right? Right. right. And then, you know, they feel like they can't take care of themselves. But I think that's really a fallacy because how can you give if you don't receive? Right. So it's like saying it's better to breathe out than to breathe in. Right? <laughs> it's not possible. Right. Right. So in order to have something valuable to give to your family, right, you have to nurture yourself first and have that inner strength. So think about, um, you know, having valuable time with your family or are you just going to be sitting around watching television with them and not conversing? Right. You know, wouldn't it be better to, you know, sort of every day take some time to yourself 
and then give that that benefit that you receive that peace that um you know inner strength give that to your family mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. no absolutely i agree with you and i think that's a very common pattern that i would see with women in my practice as a as a primary care general internist i would see many women who are feeling very very tired and just not feeling well malaise and uh, oftentimes they weren't doing anything for themselves it's just the pattern that you mentioned and i think that is it's a mistaken view of meditation because what i notice in myself and one of my signals to myself that i need to reinforce my meditation practice to make it more um, steady is if my temper gets short with other people if i find myself becoming upset with other people and i think oh that's odd you know i that is not something that little thing that happened that's not something that would have bothered me in the past what's going on oh i haven't been meditating as regularly it's a signal to me and so you get it's not only you that get the benefits of having a regular meditation practice it's everyone that you encounter in your life Mm -hmm. yeah and particularly the people that you should be giving to in your life indeed whether it's patients or students or your family. Right, right. As a reminder to our listeners, today on the Yoga Hour, our guest is yoga and meditation teacher Swami Sharadananda, author of the book we're discussing today, Sitting Comfortably, Preparing the Mind and Body for Peaceful Meditation. You can find out more about Swami Sharadananda and her books and her programs on her website, yogamentor.yoga. And on Instagram, you can follow her at yoga underscore mentor. We will have these links on our webpage, theyogahour.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us via that website, theyogahour.com, where you can also sign up for our mailing list. So Swami Sharadananda, in the book, in your book, Sitting Comfortably, you give lots of pointers about how to start a meditation practice and how to overcome obstacles to maintaining a meditation practice. What do you see as the most important thing to do to start a meditation practice? Um, I think to decide when you're going to do it and for how long. So make a time. See, it's like if you meet a friend and you say, let's get together sometime. You don't. Right. Whereas if you say, oh, let's get to, I'll see you on Tuesday at three o'clock, then you see. So why not do the same thing with meditation? Decide when you're going to practice. And also decide how long you're going to practice each day. Mm-hmm. You see, um, people always ask, when's the best time? And I, I would say, first thing when you get up, whatever time it is that you get up, right? Just sit, brush your teeth or whatever you you do in the morning. But before you eat anything, before you check your messages on your phone, just sit and meditate for a while, right? And do that every day. You see, then you make a habit. And then on days when you don't do it, you know how much better you would feel. And people say, you know, sometimes you get people who say, oh, you become addicted to practicing. Well, it's like saying you're addicted to brushing your teeth. (laughs) I brush my teeth in the morning because I know how much better I feel when I do it. So it's not that I'm addicted to it. Right. See, Um, you know, because people always try to stop for some reason, people always try to stop you from doing something beneficial to yourself Mm. because it's new, it's different. Right. Mm-hmm. No, it's so, just interesting because I, I was just thinking about what we said earlier. You know, why why do you want to meditate? Well, why do you want to be happy? And then someone says, you know, you're addicted to something, but it's making you happy. It's giving you more patience. It's bringing you more into the present moment. It's like, okay, I would be addicted to that. <laughs> that would be okay with me. Anyway, just interesting to think about it that way. Yeah. So make a time. And I tell people to actually write it down, to keep a diary for the week. And you say, this week, 
I'm going to meditate, for example, every morning when I first wake up for half an hour, right? Um, and then set an alarm. Mm. Because if you don't set an alarm, you're going to be sitting there thinking, did I sit long enough? Maybe I should sit a little longer. No, I, I think I've sat long enough. No, maybe I should get up now. You see, there's a whole dialogue going on, and then you're not meditating. Right. So just set an alarm. You know, nowadays you can get really nice alarms on your phone. You can get people chanting Om and Tibetan singing older. You know, it doesn't have to be a jarring alarm. But okay. just decide how long you're going to sit. And I used to say to people, sit for at least half an hour a day. And they all made faces at me. So then I say, okay, for beginners, try to sit for 20 minutes. And they still make faces. But I don't go less than 20 minutes because I think it takes at least 10 minutes for your body and mind to settle down. So if you're meditating for only 5 or 10 minutes a day, you're not really meditating. Mm -hmm. You're sitting quietly and there's nothing wrong with sitting quietly. It's a good thing, but you're not meditating. Right. If you really want to get into meditation, try and sit for at least 20 minutes a day. Mm -hmm. And if you can't sit that long, if you can only sit physically for five or 10 minutes a day, sit for five minutes, but next week say, okay, this week I'm going to sit for six minutes. And the next week, you make that determination, I'm sitting for seven. And you keep increasing it till you've come up to your target. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? So I would say make a time and also make a place. Mm -hmm. Because you're trying to create a new habit for your mind. Now, if we're on video now and people can see behind me, I've got like a... Um, you can call it an altar or nowadays people don't like the word altar because it's too religious. So we call it a meditation table, mm -hmm. you know, and you put something on your table that focuses your mind. And then when you sit down, it's like a cue to your mind. Okay. Now it's time to meditate. Right. Right. See? It's like people walk into the kitchen and open the fridge and then they stand there and think, Oh, wait a minute, I'm not even hungry. You see, <laughs> you just do it because you associate the kitchen with food, eating, right? right? Yeah. So make an area that your mind associates with meditation. See, and you can put on it whatever you like, you know, like I have pictures, statues. Some people don't like pictures, so don't put them there. Yeah. Some people don't like statues, um, so don't put them. You know, some people like to put pictures of their teacher. And it's not that you're worshiping that person. Like I've yeah. had people say to me, oh, he's just a human being. You know, why should you worship him? No, it's not that you're worshiping the person. But when you look at the, your teacher, it reminds you of the teachings. Mm -hmm. yeah. So whatever you find inspiring. But I would say don't put pictures of your family and friends. Because then you're going to think, oh, I have to t drive my um, son to school and I've got to, you think of some argument you were having, mm. you know. So better not to put pictures of people. And the only time I actually put pictures of people is occasionally, um, you know, people contact me, they phone me or they write and they say, um, you know, I've been really sick or my son's been really sick. Would you pray for him? So, you know, if you don't like the word pray, I send them some positive energy. Right. Right. So I have, I keep a prayer list. And when I sit for meditation, the first thing I do is I look at my prayer list and then um, I think of those people mm -hmm. and I say a little prayer for them. Mm -hmm. See? So, um, and then I start my meditation and some people, if you don't like statues, I think the only important thing to have on a table, a meditation table or an altar, is a candle. Mm -hmm. 
candle. And then, as you were saying, things that inspire you, things that lift you up, things that are uplifting. So it might be a flower, fresh flower. If you have one from your yard, that's a nice thing. Doesn't have to be fancy. Um, A a photograph of a beautiful place in nature, if you don't want a photograph of, uh, or a statue, as you said. So there's anything that is uplifting to you, I think is important to have on your, on your, I like meditation table or altar. Either one. Right. And then you light a candle. It's a signal to your mind. Okay, now I'm starting. Right. You sit for meditation. And then at the end, you put off the candle. Now I'm finished. Mm-hmm. See, I like to have sort of um, containers for my practice. Yeah. You see, so I light a candle. And then I chant a mantra or some people say a prayer or nowadays, you know, some people don't like prayers because they're too religious. So say a poem or some inspiring saying, mm-hmm. right? Even if it's just chanting Om three times, mm-hmm. right? So start with that and then also finish with a mantra or a prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, I know personally, when I've gone to classes, you know, like a yoga class or meditation class, and the teacher just walks in and starts, talking i feel like something's missing yeah. i always like to have something that officially now we're beginning you see and now it's finished and so yes. my practice that way as well mm-hmm. and i think it's really helpful mm-hmm. no i agree the only uh, thing i would uh, mention is I also will do prayers for people, people in my life or that I think need support or energy, someone, a friend who's had surgery recently or something like that. When I like to do it is at the end of my meditation practice because I really feel like I'm connected with the larger self, with the you know, universe, if you have, if you will. And, um, and then it feels like a wonderful time to offer those prayers, you know, for, for other people, um, because it, I do feel connected, more connected to them, you know, at the end. So not like there's a right way or a wrong way. It's just another option. Right, right. Yeah, that's quite interesting because I always, I've just always done it at the beginning, but to do it at the end where you feel more peaceful and sort of have more energy to give, I think that's quite a good idea. One of the things that you mentioned in the book is that it's important to let go of preconceived ideas in our meditation practice. And you you mention a couple of situations, for example, perhaps when you first started meditating, you may have had a very powerful experience. You may have had a vision or some you know connection with a larger self that then you have an expectation when you come back to meditation that you want to get back to that place and so you are then putting effort into trying to reach a certain goal rather than just an openness this reminded me of uh, Patanjali's Yoga Sutra uh, 1.12. So the you know first chapter, the 12th verse that talks about the importance in meditation of there. Were, he really just mentions two things, steadiness of practice, which we've kind of talked about. You know, it's important to have that steadiness. If you're going to start, you know, you want to have a regular daily meditation practice, but then also non-attachment, non-attachment to our ideas of what this meditation practice may it be like last week's or last month's or whatever whatever we're going uh you know whatever is in our mind you want to let that go and just be able to be in the now would you say more about that yeah because i've had a lot of people who um you know they start to meditate and it seems like beginner's luck they have a really wonderful meditation and then they can't duplicate it. So a lot of people stop practicing because they think, oh, I'll just never equal that. Right. You see? But um, I think it really is beginner's luck. So don't have that expectation. Um, also, a lot of people have the idea that they're just going to sit down and meditate and suddenly they're going to be totally blissful. And instead, they feel really angry. Yeah. And I think anger is the one emotion that tends to come up the most. Um, 
other emotions come up also. I mean, I've had students who come up to me and say, you know, this meditation is putting these really weird thoughts in my mind. And I always say, I don't think the meditation is putting them there. I think the thoughts were there, but you didn't look at them. You see, we all have anger, greed, jealousy, fear, but we want to be nice people. So if I feel angry, I try to control it. You know, I don't go around punching people. Right? So, <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> um, in a way, whenever we have any negative thoughts, we control it. In a way, it's like, um, you know, people who there's a little bit of dust there. So they pick up the rug and they sweep it underneath. Right. <laughs> Right. Then spring cleaning comes and you pick up the rug and you start to shake it out and all the dust starts to come up. Right. right. So whenever you're going to do a cleansing, a purification, whether it's of the physical house or of your own mind, it's always going to seem to get worse before it gets better. Because all the negative things that you've been controlling start coming up. So don't expect to be suddenly blissful. You know, negative thoughts, there's a good chance they'll start coming up. But when they do, you know, people always say, well, but then how do I deal with it? Is don't be attached to it. And I think as um, English speakers, it's quite difficult to understand what that means because in English we say, I am angry. That's who I am. I am angry, right? It's right there in our language. So we think about anger that that way. That's who I am. Whereas if we were Sanskrit speakers, we wouldn't say I'm angry. We would say, I go into the anger. You see, so if you go into something, you see, you can also choose not to go into it. Mm-hmm. You see, so then it's easier to think of anger as something outside of yourself. So I think when negative thoughts start to come up, instead of saying that's who I am, being attached to it, to try and see it as something outside of yourself and then let let it go. And it's like a bubble. You know, it gets bigger and bigger, and it seems to engulf you completely. But at some point, it's going to pop and be gone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think um, whatever negative thoughts come up, just don't be attached to them. Mm -hmm. See, this is the whole concept of um, abhyasa, regular practice, and vairagya, regular, um, sorry, Mm non-attachment. You have to have both. That's right. You can't be attached to your thoughts. Yes. Another thing I was thinking about was um, the importance of focus. As we were talking about that focus, developing that focus is like a muscle that we work. And so choosing a focus, and you mentioned many of them in your book, it can be um, literally focusing on a candle flame. It can be our breath, you know, as I did in the meditation, the little mindfulness exercise we did at the beginning of this, you can just use your breath as a focus. But the idea is when we're distracted by thoughts that bubble up during meditation, we can just notice that Mm -hmm. and then come back to the focus. That's the muscle that we're building, coming back to the focus, coming back to the focus, coming back to the focus. Yeah, but you can also notice the thoughts and that's 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 self-study. Yes. You can learn a lot about your own nature by noticing what kind of thoughts come up, but don't be attached to them. Right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I appreciated that you included in your book, Sitting Comfortably, is you discuss the impact of what and how we eat on our ability to have a successful meditation practice. And you talk about the gunas, and we haven't done that on the show very much, so I thought it was a nice opportunity for us to talk about the gunas 
um, in understanding the impact of, of food on our meditation practice. Both yoga and Ayurveda categorize the environment into these three qualities of nature or gunas. And they are sattva guna, which has the quality of, of lightness, purity, balance, and its nature is uplifting. Rajas guna is the quality of movement, activation, restlessness, and then tamas guna is the quality of heaviness, inertia, and darkness. And you write, one of the greatest boosts to your meditation is from developing the habit of viewing food as nourishment for your mind as well as your body. Would you say more about that? How do you talk to your students about the effects of these three gunas on our ability to meditate? Yeah, you know, a lot of people uh, try to meditate and they say, I don't think I can meditate because, you know, it's just my nature. My mind is really jumpy. And then I say to them, well, um, do you drink coffee? How many cups did you have today? That's right. You know, and the average person drinks, I don't know, maybe at least three cups a day. And a lot of people who work drink eight, 10, 12 cups a day, you know, and they have no, they don't put it together. You know, if you're drinking a lot of coffee, which stimulates your mind and body, of course, your mind is going to be jumpy. Right. See, so food or things we um, consume affect not just our physical body, but they affect our minds. See, so if I'm going to be eating very heavy foods, it not just makes my physical body heavy, but it also makes my mind heavy and lethargic, maybe even depressed. You see, so if I'm feeling I'm going through a period of depression, maybe I should try and change my diet to so that um, it's more, um, there's more light in my life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, I think it's getting people to notice that food affects the mind as well as the physical body. Right. And you point out it's not just the food itself, but it's also how we eat the food. So let's take each of those three gunas that I mentioned. So what are some examples of sattvic foods and sattvic ways of eating? Yeah. Well, sattvic foods would be... Um, say, organic fruits and vegetables, um, whole grains, um, nuts, um, you know, things that are uh, nourishing and um, simply cooked, you know, like maybe uh, salads, you know, fresh fruit and vegetable things, you see. But then say you take a fruit, like say you take an apple, right? And then you um, you make it uh, you It couldn't be rajasic. Oh, sorry. You wanted me to talk about sattva first. Yeah. yeah eating, okay. Sorry. Eating sattvically, eating is sitting and really focusing on the food, um, not sitting at my computer, not watching television while I eat but just really focusing on the food and focusing on the nourishment that it gives me and, and chewing my food. Okay. Um, rajasic foods are things that stimulate the mind, you know, um, like coffee, mm -hmm. tea. Also yogis don't eat onions and garlic because, and I know a lot of times people, they understand coffee and tea, but when you say onions and garlic, they, they, um, they don't really see the connection, but you can do an experiment. What I, the way I teach people to do it is to take a food and then stop eating it, maybe for a week or two, and then add it back into your diet and see the effect. You see, so same with garlic. If you didn't eat garlic for a few weeks and then have a nice garlicky Italian meal, you know, lots of garlic bread, try and meditate after that. 
right. and you'll really see the effect it has on your mind. Right? Um, of course, very spicy foods, chilies, and people always say, but in India, everyone eats spicy food, but not everyone in India does yoga. Mm -hmm. Most people don't actually. Mm -hmm. See? So um, in all traditions in the world, all, we have sattvic food, we have rajasic food, and then we have tamasic foods. Now, tamasic foods are have the quality of darkness, lethargy. They make you lazy, um, in extreme cases, depressed. Um, this is food that's, you know, we say stale, putrid, rotting. Mm. And of course, um, I always say meaty eating. And a lot of students don't like it when you say that. But if you think about meat, you see, meat isn't an animal. And when an a any animal dies, think about what happens almost immediately to the body as rigor mortis sets in. Mm -hmm. But yet when you buy meat in the shop, it's not hard. And if you, well, why isn't it hard? Is because the polite term is it's aged. Mm. Aging really means that it's rotting. Mm. So if you're eating meat, unless you go out and kill the animal yourself and eat it immediately, you're eating rotting meat. Mm. And it is tamasic. Mm. You know, so meat, fish, um, eggs, um, alcohol, tobacco, um, you know, things that bring you down, right? We would say this is tamasic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for that. And I, I think that it's an awareness uh, that this is something that you can look at with that process of self-study that we mentioned earlier. You know, it's a, a whole cornucopia of things that we can look at is how what we eat you know, affects our mind. So mm -hmm. I wanted to ask if someone has had a meditation practice in the past, or perhaps they still are meditating, but they're not doing it as regularly as in the past, what advice would you give to them? to kind of rededicate themselves to their meditation practice? Um, I suggest that people keep a diary. And I give people a form. Um, I can actually send you a copy of a, a sample diary that I keep. And on the top you write uh, what you, your practice intention for the week. This, for example, this week I'm going to meditate every day when I wake up for 20 minutes. Right. And then you write Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, etc. And then you write a question, did I meditate? How long did I meditate? And then you add any other questions that you of things that you want to focus on. Maybe you want to do some pranayama, some breathing exercises, or maybe you're working on some particular asana, or maybe you want to take a vitamin tablet, whatever it is you're working on. Right? You just put those questions in. And then every day you check yourself off because your mind is very, not your mind, but everyone's mind yeah. is very tricky. <laughs> is that ever the truth? <laughs> your mind can convince you of anything. And I'm, I really mean anything. Right. You might think that you've been practicing a lot lately and you actually haven't done anything in two weeks. Yeah. See? So I always tell people a story about, um, I used to uh, direct a yoga center in New York, because I'm from New York originally. I live in London now, but um, I I used to live in New York and I ran a little a yoga center where it was like a small community. We had about um, 15 people living there. Hmm. And the people that lived there wanted to have a group practice group meditation that's why they lived there and most of them they had ordinary jobs you know they worked in the bank or they taught school or um some were yoga teachers you know some were doctors different professions but they wanted group meditation in the morning so but our rule was that if you live here you have to come to meditation because that's why you're here. And if you're not going to come, then please give your place to someone else. Because we always had a waiting list. Right. See? 
So people would move in, they'd be all gung-ho. And after a couple of weeks, they'd be coming less. And I'd say to them, you know, you're not coming for meditation. And they'd say, yes, I'm coming every day. And I'd say, no, you're not coming. And they say, yes, I am coming. You see, so then we made a rule. Everyone has to keep a diary. Mm-hmm. And at, did I go for meditation? Every day, take it off. And then they all came. Because we had a rule that, okay, one day a week you can miss. So what was happening is every morning people would wake up and think, okay, today's my day off. <laughs> if you have a diary, yeah. then you know, oh, I took off yesterday. I've got to go today. Right, right. So I think keeping a diary, very simple form, like I make the form just in Excel, you know, and you just keep it next to your, in your meditation area. Every time you practice, take it off. Mm-hmm. Decide what you're going to do, make the questions, yes, no, or timing, and then take it off. Mm-hmm. Right, it's quantity, not quality, just to make sure you're doing it. Right. Well, unbelievably, we've already come to the end of our time together. I'll give you a a last uh, opportunity to leave some words of encouragement or inspiration. What would you like to share with our listeners? I think if you want to meditate, if you want to build up a practice, you have to practice and practice and practice some more. It's no good knowing about, well, not so good learning about the med- the theory of meditation. People yeah. always want to know what books should I read? What podcast should I listen to? But the most important thing is to practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I come from the Shivananda tradition and um, Swami Shivananda used to say, an ounce of practice is worth a ton of theory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, so some theory should be there, but the most important thing is to practice. Mm-hmm. No, indeed. Mm-hmm. I also liked there was one Zen saying that you had in the book. It was something like, um, "Practice every day for I forget what it was, twenty or thirty minutes. Then, if you have a busy day, practice for an hour." <laughs> so that's great advice. You've been listening to The Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and host of the show. My guest today has been Swami Sharadananda, author of the book we've been discussing today, Sitting Comfortably. You can find out more about Swami Sharadananda, her books and teaching programs at her website, yogamentor.yoga. You can also follow her on Facebook at her name, Swami Sharadananda, and on Instagram at yoga underscore mentor. We will have these links on our webpage at theyogahour.com. Thank you so much, Swami Sharadananda, for joining me today on The Yoga Hour. And thank you for inviting me. And I want to thank all your listeners or viewers as well. We hope you'll join us for many online programs offered by the sponsor of this program, the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. For listeners, CSE offers daily online meditation in the morning at 6.30 a.m. Pacific, in the afternoon at 4 p.m., and on Monday evenings at 7.30 p.m. All those times are Pacific time. There's also every Sunday a Sunday satsang. Satsang is a Sanskrit word meaning a gathering of truth seekers. That happens at 10 a.m. Pacific each week. There's another podcast that might be of interest to listeners of this program, which is the Kriya Yoga Today podcast with Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, which includes presentations from talks and classes that she's given. You can access this through the CSE website at csecenter.org or wherever you get your podcasts. There is an upcoming silent meditation retreat with Yogacharya O'Brien from March 30th to April 1st, that's 2023, on site only at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment in San Jose, California. You can find out more about classes and events at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment at the website csecenter.org. Join us next time on the Yoga Hour when I'm delighted that I will be joined by Swamini Svatma Vidyananda, 
for an episode titled Overcome Barriers to Spiritual Awakening. We'll be discussing her book on the Upanishads. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. Remember, you can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying it, share it with a friend. Thanks to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, assistant producers, Anne Hayes, Nikki Coronado, and Christine Sote. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now.